0: Well, good morning once again. My name is Pastor Mark, delighted to be with you, glad to be leading you in the Word of God this morning, glad to be together, quite frankly. Got up this morning and looked out the windows and saw that beautiful mix of freezing rain and snow, and uh, glad you uh, made it in here this morning, so glad to be together. If you'd uh, take out your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 3, is where we find ourselves this morning. Pastor Ian already read it in the service, you would have read it this past week in preparation. But uh, we're learning Christ together as we examine Mark's gospel together. In chapter 1, Jesus was introduced. Chapter 2, Jesus was revealed. This morning's message is Jesus critiqued. And so we're turning a little bit of a corner here in Mark's chapter 3. This uh, sermon series that we're engaged in through the gospel of Mark, it will take us through Resurrection Sunday, which for us is April 9th. I'm uh, looking forward to April, not just the celebration of Resurrection Sunday, but I'm looking forward to spring and uh, warmer weathers. And trust that you are as well. Well, as you found your place in Mark chapter 3, let me have just a quick word of prayer, and then we'll get into our message for this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again this morning and acknowledge your, your greatness, your awesomeness, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for what Mark's gospel has revealed concerning him and his ministry and his life, his experiences. We thank you for all that Jesus is to us, our Lord, friend, and Savior. Father, I pray that as we uh, turn our attention to the scripture this morning and to Jesus Christ, that you would instruct and encourage our hearts. Uh, May you increase our faith. May our delight in Jesus Christ abound and increase. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got a couple of questions to get us started this morning as we uh, dive into this chapter and into this sermon. Uh, a couple of uh, rhetorical questions, which means I'm not looking for an out loud answer uh, or a, a public response. You can just uh, listen to these questions and think them through. Uh, the first question is, would you, would you rather be wildly popular, as in you come into a room, everyone knows who you are, thinks you're awesome, you're successful, you're attractive, you're, you're well-known, um, you're, you're groovy, or you're cool, or you're bad, or you're dope. Isn't that the new dope? When I was a kid, if you were dope, that wasn't a good thing. Apparently now it's a, if you're dope, you're cool. So would you rather be wildly popular, or would you rather have a few close friends and be somewhat obscure? A few close friends who are reliable, loyal, faithful, genuine, authentic, peculiar, because we're all peculiar. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we find both of those options very desirable. We like to be known, we like to be well-liked, we like to be accepted, and the larger the crowd, the better that is for us. So we like to be popular, Uh, we also know the blessing of having a few close friends. And uh, so having both of those would be a win-win, both of those are very desirable, depending on our personality, we might choose one over the other, but both would be desirable by us. The second question, the first one's rather positive. Would you rather be wildly popular or have a few close friends? The second question is uh, between two bad options, if you will. Would you rather be severely scrutinized by the government? So think IRS, FBI, IHOP. (laughs) Would you rather be severely scrutinized by the government, like the government powers are seeking to destroy your life, Freezing your assets, controlling your movements, trying to create bogus charges against you. If they could, they would just completely eliminate you. Would you rather be severely scrutinized by the government or would you rather be rejected and denied by your own family? Which would you choose? Again, neither of those options are good. No one would want to experience severe governmental persecution nor be rejected or denied by your family. Both of those are very bad options. I bring them up this morning because in Mark chapter 3, which we've read together, we discover that Jesus experienced all four of those options, and Mark records them in one chapter. Jesus was opposed by the government, he was confronted and denied by his family, he was wildly popular, he had crowds of people following him everywhere, and he also had a few close friends who were to be with him and share with him daily life experiences. So Jesus shared all of this the one who in chapter 1 and 2 declares himself to be God and demonstrates that to be true by his actions, truly this man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, entered into our human experience. And he experienced all that we experience, and he endures all that we endure, the good and the bad and the ugly. As I read Mark chapter 3 with you this past week, I took the chapter and I divided it into three headings. Here are the three headings that we'll work through this morning. Uh, The first is opposition, the second heading is confrontation, and then the third is fascination. Those are my three headings that we'll go through. In Mark chapter 3, we notice that Jesus was opposed by the governing authorities. He was confronted by his own family negatively, and he was held by, in great fascination by crowds of people who followed him everywhere. Some people in that crowd would become close friends, others would flame out. When they didn't understand him and decided against him. Jesus, in the Gospels, he knew who his friends were. He also knew who his foes were. Well, let's uh, let's make our way through this outline, make our way through the chapter, and we'll begin with opposition. If you look at Mark chapter 3, if you have your Bibles open, in the opening paragraph, we find that Jesus heals a man with a deformed hand, and he does it in the synagogue on the Sabbath, which means he's in the wrong place on the wrong day before the wrong crowd. In verse 2, we notice that the religious leaders are looking for a way to accuse Jesus. They've already decided against him, and now they're researching ways and concocting ways to accuse him and bring him down. Uh, It makes us wonder right off the bat if this man with a withered hand was a plant, if he was there on purpose, like they put him in the crowd trying to trap Jesus between his compassion for people and his keeping of their rules. And of course, if you kept the Pharisees' rules, you were keeping the law. And they're trying to trap Jesus. They want to bring him down. In verse 5, we notice that Jesus is grieved and angered. He's fully human, human emotions here. He's grieved and angered by their hard hearts. And working against the religious leader's paradigm, he does good, and he heals the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and he heals him both powerfully and miraculously. In response to this, the religious leaders respond, and we see in verse 6, I'll put it on the screen, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to, how to destroy him. Now, this is a very interesting and powerful coalition against Jesus. The Pharisees are the leading religious party and the Herodians are a very strong political party. And together they form a force of opposition against Jesus. This would be the worst case scenario if they're gunning for you. And it'll take a couple years. It'll take a couple years for them to bring Jesus down, and they will have him crucified, literally. They won't just freeze his assets, control his movements, imprison him, seek to exile him. They will literally pin him to a tree and make him a public spectacle. They've set out to destroy him very early in Jesus' ministry, and they will do it. Uh, This opposition group established early in Jesus' ministry is an interesting alliance. The Pharisees, this leading religious party, they would have hated the Herodians because the Herodians supported the Roman occupation by supporting Herod, the assigned Roman leader. And so historically, these two groups would have been politically opposed, philosophically opposed. They would have hated one another bigger than Republicans hate Democrats and vice versa. These two groups couldn't stand one another, but they're united now in their angst against Jesus. How would you like to be in their crosshairs? The leading religious party and a strong political group coming after you, seeking to destroy you. This is Jesus' experience. These two groups, both the Herodians and the Pharisees, are threatened by Jesus. Threatened by his power, threatened by his popularity. They're both threatened and jealous, and they have united to destroy him. This is the opposition against Jesus. Uh, the question you might ask as you read the first paragraph is, why don't they just do it? Why don't they just eliminate him? Why don't they just take him out? They've got the, they've got the power to do so. Why, do, why don't they just destroy Jesus right out the shoot? Well, we might make an argument for God's providence, God's providential care for Jesus. I mean, Jesus has come to this earth. He's got a mission to perform. He's got a job to do, and uh, he has a ministry to accomplish. He's untouchable until his time has come. And so there's a, a real case that could be made for God's providential care for Jesus. But beyond the providential care is the pragmatic problem that the leaders have with Jesus' popularity. You can't just take out someone whom the crowds love. I mean, the crowds love Jesus. They're all over Jesus. They're following him around like crazy. If you knock out that guy, you would lose some of your own political traction, right? If you're a political leader, if you're a religious leader and you knock out the guy everyone loves, ah, you'll lose some of your own credibility. You'll lose some of your own popularity. You'll lose some of your power. So you can't just knock Jesus out. Even though they want to destroy him, they, they can't do it immediately. So if you can't destroy Jesus immediately, what's the second course of action? Uh, You can discredit him. And we read that in verse 22, if you will, if you look ahead in your Bible. And the scribes, some of your translations might say religious leaders, that would be uh, accurate. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, thought to be maybe a Canaanite god, representative of Satan himself. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So here is this religious political party seeking to destroy Jesus. They can't do that immediately. So what do they do? They seek to discredit him, turn the crowds against him. And if you can do that, if you can get the crowds against Jesus, then you can do with him whatever you please. These religious and political leaders, they can't deny Jesus' miracles. They can't deny that something great is happening by someone great in their presence. And so what they do is they spin the story. They twist the narrative. If they can get the crowds to begin thinking something other about Jesus than what they're thinking, then they can do what they want with Jesus. But it's interesting as we read this chapter, as the religious leaders and political leaders seek to destroy Jesus, they can't do it, so they seek to discredit him, but the logic they use is horrible. Turn in your Bibles to the same chapter, chapter 3, and, uh, and look at um, oh, verse 22, verse it says, let me go back, I'm sorry, they, uh, they say he's, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. So here's their logic. In the power of Satan, Jesus is seeking to undo Satan's work. Does that make any sense? In the power of Satan, Jesus is doing his works in the power of Satan, and in the power of Satan, Jesus is seeking to undo Satan's works. doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, These leaders recognize that the power that Jesus is exercising is great and it's undeniable. This power is otherworldly. It's cosmic. It's not done by a normal human. They can't attribute that power to God's power because they've already rejected Jesus's claims to be God. And so they can only attribute Jesus's works to being demonic. Jesus quickly unravels their bad logic. And he says to them, If Satan is doing Satan's work, then Satan's kingdom is self-destructing. Satan isn't that stupid. Satan isn't doing that kind of work. Satan is out to destroy his own kingdom. Jesus, like the leaders, acknowledges that great work is at work in their presence, and great miracles are happening. He attributes the miracles to the work of the stronger man, a stronger man than Satan, the strong man, the God-man. Jesus came not to do Satan's work, but to crush Satan and to undo Satan's works. As we read the final paragraph here, or the paragraph before the final one in Mark chapter 3, we we, we discover that Jesus not only debunks their logic, but he gives the religious leaders a solid warning. And this is, you you read this this past week, look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus speaking to these religious leaders who are out to destroy him, he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Jesus, as we've read in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Jesus has come from God. He's come as God to provide for humanity's forgiveness and acceptance If Jesus is denied, if Jesus is discredited, what forgiveness remains? He's the provision from God for mankind's forgiveness and acceptance. If he's denied and discredited, destroyed, what forgiveness remains? If these leaders continue to willfully, deliberately deny Jesus and discredit Jesus... There is no other forgiveness available. They're cutting their own throats. To persist in unbelief would be an eternal sin. So Jesus, in responding to this opposition, who are out to destroy him but then seek to discredit him, he, 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 just, he, he, he deals with their logic and says, not only is your logic off, but your eternity is in peril. If you persistently deny the provision that God has made, for forgiveness and acceptance in the person of Jesus Christ. So in this context, Jesus corrects their logic and he counsels their souls. And they need to heed this strong warning. Persistent unbelief is damning. And this is the lane that they're currently in. And Jesus graciously provides this opposition, that counsel. So there's My first heading, opposition. Jesus is opposed by the political and religious leaders. They're out to destroy him. They seek to discredit him. Jesus handles that crowd. The second heading of the chapter is confrontation. Who confronts Jesus? And who confronts him negatively? Uh, Well, we find in the chapter that it's his family. His family seeks to confront him and control him. Look back with me at verses 20 and 21. I'll put it on the screen. Then he went out. Then he went home. And the crowd, the crowd that's with him all the time in these early chapters, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, to control him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. That's a great vote of family support right there. Let's go get crazy Jesus. He's out of his mind. Guy's gone nuts. The dude's lost it. Uh, Let's go get Jesus. Let's rein him in. He's, He's not being himself again. Let's go get Jesus to save our family name and protect our reputation before Jesus continues these crazy antics and destroys our carpentry business. How do you like that? Mark and the other gospel writers reveal that Jesus was raised in the context of a family. Raised by imperfect parents, imperfect parents whom Jesus submitted to, respected, and obeyed. Jesus not only had parents, but he had siblings, children who were born to Mary and Joseph. The other gospel writers reveal that Jesus' siblings were not in the group of early believers. That's not surprising, is it? Family can be a tough crowd. Family, intended by God to be an immeasurable blessing, can sometimes cast a great shadow of pain across life. Jesus knows, he knows that experientially. He's in his 30s and he's got a helicopter mom and he's got manipulative siblings and they think he's nuts. He's lost it. They gotta go get him. They gotta get him back under control. Family members can be the first ones to devalue you and deny you. Jesus knew what it was to be devalued by his own family. How's that land on you? Uh, that's a pain that can be hard to live with. I've met mature adults in their 50s and 60s who are still working to gain their parents' approval. And it's painful to watch. And here's Jesus' family confronting him to control him and his ob- crazy, crazy Jesus. You've got to get him under control if you know what it is to be underappreciated by your family, you're in good company. But Jesus was there too. When you jump to the end of the chapter, if you look at verse 31, as a matter of fact, I won't put this on the screen. It's a little bit longer to read. We find Jesus' family stepping back into the story and trying to interject themselves into Jesus' life. If you look at verse 31, it says, And his mother, this is Mary here that we're speaking of, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to, sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. And he answered them, Who? Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know, we know that family is a big deal. Marriage and family is a big deal. Uh, marriage and family rank high in Christian values and in Christian virtues. Marriage was established by God in the very beginning when He creates the human race in His image, male and female, and He puts them together as husband and wife. Marriage created by God at the very start. Family ordained by God. One of the purposes of marriage is to procreate and have a, have a family. When you have a married couple that get together and they can't have children, it's a, it's a horrible trial, very difficult. But we know that marriage and family ordained by God, established by God in the very beginning, is is so very important and so meaningful and so valuable. Uh, There are so many biblical instructions from beginning to end in the Bible that we could have long sermon series on family and marriage. We know that parents are to raise responsible, God-fearing children. We know that children are to be respectful and obeying of their parents, and marriage is a, a microcosm of God's family. The husband and the wife are to be reflective of Christ and his church. So we we know that family is a big deal. We know that marriage is a big deal. But here we learn from Jesus that while family is a high ideal for God-fearing, Bible-believing people, we also know that family itself can become an idol. A priority that usurps God's place and a community that overshadows God's community. And here in this paragraph, Jesus offers this wise and gracious instruction. You know, I have siblings. I'm the youngest of five. I have parents. We, uh, we love one another and we get along very well, which I'm very grateful for. And uh, we get together regularly. And when I mean regularly, I mean that we get together, you know, uh, maybe once a quarter and at family funerals and family weddings. So maybe six times a year we get together. I meet with you guys every week. I get with you guys every week. Every Sunday we gather together. Why? Because we've been united by Jesus. And He has our superior allegiance and our strongest affection. We love Him and we we love one another. We gather together regularly. Jesus knows what it is to have family members come after him and come to control him. He says, now, who's my family? They're right here. Those who love God and know God and believe God and do his will. These are are my brothers and sisters and and mothers. Uh, Jesus, as we read chapter 3, he knows and understands what it is to be undervalued by family and underappreciated them and thought of as crazy. He also knows what it is to be sought out by his family to be controlled by them. This is a challenging confrontation. If we're thinking through the text and if we're thinking through our own life experiences, we may know that family can be a challenging relationship to navigate. Sometimes close, sometimes cruel, always important. Family is sometimes close, sometimes cruel, always important. Family is super important, but not more important than God and not more important than God's people. And here we read that Jesus' identity and his relationship with his heavenly father keeps the biological family in its proper place, and God's family in its proper place. Jesus knew how to honor his parents. He also knew when and how to honor God and put his people in their rightful place. It's also just an immeasurable blessing for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and have been united to God and placed into his family as dearly loved children. What a blessing that is. John wrote in John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, sons and daughters of God. Well, here's the first two Jesus was uh, opposed by religious leaders, he was confronted negatively by his family. Uh, The last one is fascination, the last heading on this chapter. If you go back to verse 7, uh, here we read that Jesus withdrew. He probably withdrew because of the persecution he was experiencing from the leaders in in that context. Jesus withdrew. He withdrew with his disciples, and great crowds of people followed him. We read that paragraph, and this great crowd of people, they came from the north, south, east, west. People from everywhere were following him everywhere he went. We jump over to verse 20 and then to verse 32, and we see that crowds of people are packing the house where Jesus was, and that's where his mother and brothers come to, to seek him out. But in this context of this burgeoning crowd that is crushing on Jesus, we read that Jesus goes up on the hillside and he calls 12 disciples to be with him. We see that in verses 13 through 19. It's interesting to think through this. We read in verse 9 that crowds of people are crushing on Jesus. He'd been healing people. He'd been healing sick people. And so all sorts of sick people are packing around Jesus to be near him and touch him. And we get freaked out when someone with COVID comes to church. I'm just, just making you think it through. Jesus is walking down the sea, street and all sorts of sick people are packing around him. How would that make you feel? you Jesus! You read through this, and made me think uh, several years ago, probably a decade back now, I, Lynn and I were in Papua New Guinea. A fascinating place. Maybe we'll go back there sometime. But in Papua New Guinea, more than, it was a decade ago, Lynn had blonde hair, brown eyes, fair skin. And everyone in Papua New Guinea has dark skin, dark curly hair, dark eyes, and they have no personal space at all. I mean, we have a pretty good personal space. In Papua New Guinea, they don't have a personal space. So we would go into the marketplace, and Lynn would go down the marketplace, and there would be... As many women around her as you can imagine touching her, all over her body. Someone just walked by to touch her hair. Because they hadn't seen blonde, straight hair before. They are all dark, curly hair. That's, That's magical. Freaked her out. Could you imagine? Here's Jesus going down the streets, and crowds of people are fascinated with him. Jesus knows how to be the most popular guy in town. He had the experience of all sorts of adoring fans. He also knows the experience of having a few close friends. Some of those friends loyal, some of those unloyal. Mark, like the other gospel writers, he he mentions here 12 by name, 12 chosen disciples. Out of the 12 that are mentioned here in chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, out of the 12 that are mentioned here in this group, how many get mentioned again in Mark's gospel? Four. That's it. Peter, James, and John, and who else gets mentioned? Peter, James, and John, and Judas. Peter is always mentioned first. Judas is always related to as the betrayer. The other eight disciples, they remain, they remain obscure. We never hear their names again in Mark's gospel. It's not as though they're not important. It's just not they're, they're not the point of the story. Mark is introducing us and exposing us to Jesus Christ. Uh, As we think through this, when it comes to Jesus, he, he, he knows crowds and he knows close friends. He knows what it is to be wildly popular and he knows what it is to have the intimacy of an inner crowd. Jesus has experience with them both. As we continue to read through the Gospels, we'll know that some of those friends are fickle and some are faithful. And Jesus knows both of them as well. We'll also see Jesus drawing out faith and bringing people to faith and increasing their faith. He will also see him revealing unbelief. And so we learn from this that Jesus knows how to handle the crowd and he knows how to disciple close friends. And we also learn from Jesus that he remains unchanged by them. Fans, friends, family, These can be hugely influential groups. Jesus remains unchanged, a man of perfect integrity and a man of complete humility in all of those contexts. Complete humility in that his focus is on God and doing God's will and on serving other people. Whether whether he's on the mountain all alone praying, whether he's discipling his 12 disciples, or he's interacting with the closer three, or he's teaching the multitudes, Jesus remains the same in all of those contexts unchanged in his identity and steadfast in his mission. How remarkable, how exceptional Jesus truly is. Well, my message this morning, taken from Mark chapter 3, has these three headings, opposition, confrontation, fascination. Jesus was opposed by political and religious leaders. He handled that. He was confronted negatively by his family. He handled that, teaches us through that, and he had the fascination of the crowds. He had a few close friends. He had huge, adoring fans. Jesus remains unchanged by all of that as he accomplishes God's work. Now before, I've got just a few minutes left, before we uh, uh, close this chapter and move on to chapter four next week, I, I want to point out that in this chapter, as you read it this week, it, it exposes to us three possible positions that are available to us regarding Jesus Christ. Uh, some of you would be familiar in more recent times with uh, C.S. Lewis's work. C.S. Lewis is now passed, but he wrote a lot in the 40s and 50s. Um, he he put forward in mere Christianity uh, that famous argument of liar, lunatic, Lord. Uh, Jesus is either a great huckster and a great deceiver, someone who ought to be ignored and destroyed, or he's crazy. He's like a man claiming you know he claims to be God. That's like me claiming to be a poached egg. That's you know, just it's ridiculous. So either Jesus is a a, a liar or he's crazy or he is who he claimed to be. He's Lord. And and, and C.S. Lewis made that argument very popular in his writing, Mere Christianity. But I find all three of these positions as it relates to Jesus in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the religious leaders are convinced that Jesus is a great deceiver and worthy of being destroyed. They think he's bad. That's their position on Jesus. That's their approach to Jesus. That's their opinion on Jesus. Jesus is bad. You've got to get rid of Jesus. He's got to go. And they set out to destroy him, and in a few years they will, or so they think, on a cross. Uh, the religious leaders are convinced that Jesus is bad. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Uh, read, read it again in verse 21. They thought he was out of his mind. We need to take control of him. He's, a, he's, he's loony. He's lost it. He's gone nuts. He's not acting as himself. But then, in chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, the disciples who accepted Jesus' call to join themselves to him, they discover that Jesus is who he claims to be, the Lord of all, the Lord of heaven and earth. So in chapter 3, we see opposition, confrontation, fascination. We see family and friends and fans, but we also see these three possible positions as it relates to Jesus Christ. He's either bad, or he's mad, or he's God. Those are the options that are available to us. And and, and Mark Mark lands on this long before C.S. Lewis ever landed on it. And he reveals to us in Mark chapter 3. Mark is going to continue to reveal that Jesus is God, and Jesus is God's good news. He's good news. God sent his son out of love for a lost world. And through the powerful work of Jesus, God is reconciling to himself sinners who are forgiven and accepted by the work of Jesus Christ himself and through Jesus Christ. Well, we began the sermon series, or the sermon this morning, asking a couple of questions. Would you rather be wildly popular or have a few close friends? Would you rather be opposed by the government or rejected by your family? And as we make our way through the chapter, we realize that Jesus knows all of these experiences, and he's unchanged by them, unchanged in his person and unmoved from his mission. And he came to provide us forgiveness and acceptance. All glory to Jesus Christ. and Praise be to his name. He's the one who is worthy of our faith and of our allegiance. And to him we give our praise. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your grace and kindness to us in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you have revealed concerning him. We thank you for the fact that through him we are reconciled to you and brought into your family as dearly loved children. And So we praise you for Jesus. Father, continue. May, may we learn Christ together as we continue to press forward in this gospel. May you bring those who are not in faith to faith. Even today, with a strong warning to persist in unbelief, to persist in discrediting and denying Jesus is an eternal sin. So, Father, I pray that today there might be some who turn to Jesus Christ and place their faith in Him as Lord and Savior. For those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus, may our affection for Him and our knowledge of Him and our desire for Him continue to grow and increase. May you use us as your ambassadors. Father, we thank you for your word thank you for its power. May it continue its work in our lives, conforming us into the image of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.